From the Inspiration Offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia, and as always, I'm joined by Patrick Malloy, and Chris Jackson is calling in from London once again. How are you guys? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, very good, buddy. Yeah? How was your guys' weekend? Anything interesting? Well, I just moved into a new apartment, and uh, I spent part of the weekend in Colorado. Beautiful Colorado. This will be the second episode in a row that we've talked about your moving experience, Patrick. Yeah. Even briefly. It's been traumatic. Well, how... <laughs> Patrick, what do, what do they make of uh, hygiene in Colorado? Do they find it kind of interesting? I mean, isn't uh, I, I thought the RMI kids were the uh, sort of godfathers of hydrogen back in the day. Well, Amory Lovins has a has a wonderful paper, uh, which I believe is called the the Twenty Myths about hydrogen. Twenty myths debunk. Anyway, Chris, how are things in the UK? Chris, has Bojo sorted everything out over there? I think honestly, no one wants to talk about it, buddy. I mean, the only thing that has been quite positive in the UK is lots of funding announced for hydrogen at the moment, including some money for uh, hydrogen in a distillery, potentially in Scotland, help make uh, gin a little bit cleaner and greener. So uh, so that's been pretty positive, but uh, I think the politics side of things isn't really something people are hugely thrilled about talking about. Great. So that's Andrew, it, huh? Andrew, how was your weekend? Thank you for asking. It was terrible. <laughs> I was moving. <laughs> I had to move apartments. So wait, you're both moving. What is this? Is this like an annual ritual in the States? Or this is how we're telling you we're moving in together, Chris. Right, I see. Put two and two together. We're moving into the All podcast right. studio. <laughs> so today we're going to talk to Bjorn Simonsen, Vice President of Investor Relations and Corporate Communications at Nell Hydrogen, based in Oslo. I think we're going to have a quick chat about just about everything Nell does. What do you guys, uh, what do you guys think we... Uh, What's going to be the most interesting thing we address today? I'm interested to hear about uh, Nell's, Nell's future planning, given that they are one of the largest and, and indeed oldest uh, electrolyzer companies in the, in the world. Um, they've How been, old? I believe 1927 was when they were Good Lord. out of Norsk Hydro. And yeah, I think, uh, I think given the big moves that they've made around uh, the mobility space in particular with Nikola, I'm very interested to know where their take is on what's what's happening now and what's happening next. Any thoughts, Chris? One of the things that's really interesting is the fact that, uh, you know, as Patch is alluding to, this is a company that has a really rich history in this space. They've seen it all happen before. So I think we'll get some really interesting insights there. Um, Nick, it's also important to know that Nell have been involved um, and are involved in some of the most interesting projects in the space. So, um, you know, when we were talking with ITM, we were talking quite a lot about industrial applications um, and some of the cutting edge stuff that uh, ITM are doing in that space. But uh, one of the things that's really interesting about Nell is the role they've actually been doing in a lot of the mobility space as well. And uh, they've got a very well-known partnership with a US startup called Nikola, which is a fuel cell truck provider. Uh, so hopefully we'll get a chat a little bit to them about that and to kind of get their sense on, on how all of that has played out and what they think that means for the industry. All right, let's give them a call. So Bjorn, if you wouldn't mind just uh, giving our listeners a little bit of background about Nell, a little bit about its history and what you guys do, that would be great. Absolutely. Uh, Nell has a, has a really interesting uh, history, actually. And uh, the origins uh, date all the way back to 1927 with large-scale green fertilizer production. Uh, that time, we were basically an integral part of Norsk Hydro, which was one of the biggest fertilizer producers 
globally at that point. And they built several hundred megawatts of electrolyzers to provide the necessary hydrogen to produce ammonia for the fertilizer that they were manufacturing uh, primarily in Norway. So they built some of the world's largest electrolyzer plants almost 100 years ago. Since then, fossil uh, sources have taken over as the main source of hydrogen for the fertilizer production. And uh, once that started happening, uh, they realized that they had a technology that they were not using anymore, but they had put so much resources and efforts into that technology uh, and having the most efficient electrolyzer technology on the market, they decided to sell that to other industries. So that was in 1974. Uh, then we can fast forward to uh, around 2000. The company started looking into hydrogen as an energy carrier, developing hydrogen refueling stations, installing the first public fueling station in Reykjavik, Iceland in 2003, uh, moving on to power-to-gas project in 2004, uh, where uh, 10 households on, on an island off the west coast of Norway were powered uh, only through hydrogen and uh, wind energy. Then moving towards 2008, uh, the company built more fueling stations both in Germany and Norway. But uh, when uh, the uh, expected development of uh, hydrogen vehicles didn't materialize at that point, they decided to sell it off to private investors. Uh, the company at that time was owned by, by Statoil, uh, today known by Equinor. Uh, and uh, the private investors uh, acquired the company in 2011, took it public 2014. Uh, since then, we've grown both organically and uh, through acquisitions, uh, first acquiring a fueling station company, uh, H2Logic, in 2015, followed by an electrolyzer manufacturer, Proton Onsite, in 2017. Uh, so today, we are a, um, a happy company, growing company, uh, the biggest electrolyzer manufacturer globally. Bjorn, um, as, as a kind of a follow-on to that that transitional story across different uh, applications and industries, where do you see the the next big sectors for the demand for hydrogen being? Well, uh, the interesting thing with uh, with the hydrogen industry is that it's already uh, there's already a big market. It's massive. I mean, there's uh, uh, between 50 and 70 million tons of hydrogen being consumed per year, depending on what source you use. Uh, if you would take all that hydrogen and fuel fuel that on passenger vehicles, that would be enough for, for half a billion uh, fuel cell vehicles. So, so the amounts are massive already, but it's basically all coming from fossil sources, uh, natural gas, uh, oil, coal, uh, and it's being used for industrial purposes. In fact, more than half of the hydrogen being consumed today is being consumed in, in the sector where we began, in the fertilizer industry. And... Uh, when we are thinking hydrogen uh, in Nell, we are, of course, thinking green hydrogen. So one of the most attractive markets uh, going forward is actually the existing market. Uh, but of course, then replacing uh, the, the, the fossil-based hydrogen with renewable hydrogen. Of course, on top of that, there are massive opportunities both in, in the mobility sector and also in, uh, in industry sectors such as steel. Just wanted to jump in with a question, if I may, on that one, Bjorn. The concept of green hydrogen, I think uh, a lot of listeners would probably assume green hydrogen is just renewable energy, and maybe some would just think it's renewable energy from electrolysis. Um, something I wanted to ask you, because it came up in a conversation with uh, a couple of guys working in North America, was 
uh, when you talk about, uh, or when Nell talks about green hydrogen, are you also talking about hydrogen generated from hydroelectric power? Because I know that that has been an interesting discussion that people have been having in the US around, well, could we use some of our hydroelectric power to generate hydrogen and would that count as green from a credits perspective? Um, and, you know, maybe that sounds a little bit wonky to some of our listeners, but obviously hydro is often a source of very good dispatchable zero emission power. Uh, and so it's kind of an interesting question, I think, for some people around whether that should be considered as part of that green hydrogen product that you're looking at. Oh, absolutely. I mean, hydropower is, is uh, one of the cleanest powers uh, we, we have around. So so when we talk uh, green hydrogen, we, we uh, typically think about hydropower, but also, of course, wind and solar, which has had a massive uh, development over the last couple of decades. And to that end, Bjorn, uh, Nell has uh, famously coined the term fossil parity. And I uh, wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that means and, uh, and why it's so important. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a way for us to communicate where hydrogen is. Uh, again, a green hydrogen. Uh, because uh, um, if you try to piece together uh, the entire value chain and look at various segments around the world, it easily gets confusing and you have to take into consideration uh, the, the investments of, of uh, the electrolyzer. If you're talking mobility, then you have the distribution, you have the fueling station, you have all of that. And then you ask uh, how competitive is renewable hydrogen really? So we termed the coin fossil parity to, to illustrate that in a simple way. And fossil parity basically means the point at which uh, renewable hydrogen outcompetes gasoline and diesel in the transport sector and fossil hydrogen in the industry sector. That, of course, depends on, on what the natural gas costs for the ammonia producers and also what, what price you can uh, develop the oil for. But if you, if you look at the, uh, an average uh, across the world, we can say that uh, fossil parity for hydrogen in the transport sector, uh, you can reach that at an electricity price below $50 per megawatt hour. And for the industry sector, you can reach, uh, you start reaching that at uh, an electricity price of below $30 per megawatt hour. And that development is more or less only driven by the development in renewables. I mean, renewable en energy and electricity needs to be cheaper than the fossil electricity. Because if fossil electricity based on natural gas is cheaper than renewable electricity, there is no way that any industries will switch from, from their fossil natural gas based hydrogen to renewable. I'm sorry, Bjorn, I just wanted to follow quickly on that point around uh, $50 a megawatt hour being the price point where uh, you reach fossil parity, um, as you put it. Um, you know, I think from information I remember seeing from the Californian government, they estimated that around $8 a kilo uh, on the transport sector was around comparable or slightly cheaper than uh, diesel on an energy cost per gas per gallon, I think, compared to gasoline. But um, mm -hmm. I just wanted to clarify, you don't mean there that uh, hydrogen in the transport sector, green hydrogen is cheaper necessarily than blue hydrogen would be in the transport sector. You're simply saying that a fuel cell electric vehicle using green hydrogen at that point is cheaper than an internal combustion engine. Yeah, that, that, that's that's an interesting topic, uh, blue hydrogen. We're happy about blue hydrogen. Uh, and I guess if, if uh, some listeners don't know what that is, that is steam methane reforming with carbon capture and storage. So, so we're, we're happy about uh, uh, blue hydrogen coming uh, to the market 
most likely. Uh, it has its own challenges and, and uh, no one really knows what blue hydrogen is going to cost in the end. So we're not too concerned about that. I mean, we are competing against uh, uh, gasoline and diesel and we're competing against fossil hydrogen in the industry sector and coal and steel industry. So uh, what we are looking at is the existing alternatives. And if you can beat those and beat them without incentives, well, then there's room for a lot of players, uh, either if you have mm, blue or green or, or, or white or purple hydrogen. <laughs> it does feel like there are probably a million colors out there at the moment, even for people inside the industry. So uh, I take that last point well. So Bjorn, what's quite unusual about now is the fact that you provide both alkaline and PEM technologies in the electrolysis space. You know, suddenly I think the only other competitor I can think of that does that really is uh, Hydrogenics. Um, and maybe there are one or two other smaller companies. But maybe you could explain to our listeners a little bit about how you see the distinction between where these two technologies fit in terms of, you know, are they addressing similar markets or are they addressing different markets? Uh, and maybe where you kind of see the sort of greater growth potential on the PEM side or on the alkaline side. Absolutely. I mean, the reason we have both technologies today is because the market is asking for both technologies. So us wanting to be a leader in, in the electrolyzer space, uh, well, that, that craves that we have uh, uh, both alkaline and PEM electrolyzers. And uh, they, to a very high degree, they complement each other. But just like batteries and hydrogen in, in the transport sector uh, is sometimes overlapping, the same applies to, to PEM and alkaline electrolyzers. But you could say the general rule is uh, from micro systems to uh, some tens of megawatt systems, uh, PEM electrolyzers are great. Uh, if you want to go massive scale uh, up in the hundreds of megawatts, well, then um, the CapEx element uh, becomes really important. Efficiency becomes really important. And for the time being, the alkaline electrolyzers are both cheaper and more efficient than the PEMs if you go large scale. We are developing both technologies. So our PEMs are improving, they're getting bigger and cheaper. Our alkalines are improving, they're getting bigger and cheaper. So we, we uh, at this point, we don't really see uh, one true winner five or 10 years down the road. Who knows, maybe in 2030, we'll still have uh, both PEM and alkaline electrolyzers. So I guess the sort of link question to this is, um, you know, one of the consistent themes from the industry is the need for scaling uh, and the need to get to these larger levels. So I guess what's interesting is if you're sort of pushing two different technologies, does that somewhat inhibit the ability to scale in one technology? I appreciate that there is a flexibility element to that, but I mean, I just thought it was an observation worth making that if you're trying to scale two separate technologies at the same time, uh, does that impact on your ability to make some cost savings? Well, uh, back to the PEM and Alkaline, what, what it actually uh, enables us to do is to sit down with the customer and discuss the project he has and, and together with the customer figure out whether or not he or she should go for a PEM or an Alkaline. So we're not pushing one technology. And if a particular customer wants alkaline electrolyzers like Nikola Motors, for example, then, well, that's, uh, and, and if they want a lot of it, which is also the case there, well, that's the technology we will, we will scale up first uh, in terms of uh, manufacturing. So we have both options, we're working on both, and, and, and we'll probably have both in the future. And, and again, I, I think the analogy with, with car companies both having battery electric vehicles and hydrogen vehicles, I mean, that, that analogy is, is, is quite close to what we're thinking also. 
one of the things that people may know or may not know is that uh, Nell is sort of frequently um, sort of cited often as the sort of price benchmark point for these technologies. So if you pick up a IEA or World Economic, uh, World Energy Council or BNEF report, quite frequently it tends to be either yourself expressly quoted Bjorn or, or sort of a source at Nell. And so given that often uh, Nell is the sort of pricing point for the industry in terms of where perhaps the lower bound of cost might be, um, do you have a sense or are you able to share a sense with us of where you think the sort of CapEx prices will cap out for alkaline and for PEM electrolysis? Um, so, I mean, for our listeners, I think the last number that you put out public was about $450 a kilowatt for an alkaline system getting above 20 megawatts. And for PEM was about $1,000 a kilowatt at over two megawatts. So can you maybe talk a bit to how far you think you can go beyond that? Yeah, absolutely. First, I want to look back a little bit because why hasn't electrolysis been been an option uh, for for these applications before? I mean, one massive element is, of course, the electricity price uh, has been too high. Uh, another one has been that the capex is too high. The electrolyzers basically ha- haven't made it to the catalog of the of the <laughs> ammonia companies because it's too expensive. Electrolyzers uh, ten years ago would cost thousand plus dollars per kilowatt for for alkaline electrolyzers and and up in uh, close to 2000 uh, per kilowatt for PEM electrolyzers and with large scale reformers uh, between uh, 300 and 500 dollars per kilowatt electrolysis was basically not an option what we have done is that we have managed to take down the cost significantly and with the facility that we are uh, building now we will be able to get down to the 450 dollars per kilowatt, the number you mentioned. And that takes us down to a parity with steam ethane reformers. And that's for the traditional steam ethane reformers, not the ones where you have to include carbon capture and storage. Um, Going beyond that, well, we have also communicated that we believe uh, there is a pretty clear pathway to $350 per kilowatt uh, before 2030, depending on the volume development. And, uh, and the industry as a whole agrees that, uh, well, towards 2050, we should be able to reach uh, $200 per kilowatt. But who knows where, where, where that development will go? Because you know, we, we believe we will see the same development in this industry as we have seen in the solar and wind industry. Bjorn, just, just to quickly follow on, what, what are the uh, kind of factors that are, that are driving down those, those costs? You know, when you talk to a, a 2050 kind of price point, that's less than half of, of kind of today's kind of target prices. What's, what's pushing that? Well, it's, uh, it's several things. Uh, uh, if we look at uh, what we are doing now by, uh, by scaling up our manufacturing by 10 times from, from today's level, we see we can reduce our costs by up to 50%. And that's basically taking it down to $450 per kilowatt. And there are three elements to that. One obvious is, is of course, automation. I mean, this industry has been a niche industry for several decades. There's been less than 100 megawatt of electrolyzers sold globally uh, over the last years. And and to put that into perspective, you know, last year, 100,000 megawatt of solar was installed globally. so automation is obviously uh, a big thing here. We'll have higher throughput, we have la- lower labor costs. And then the next one is engineering. You know, we have 
taken a good look at our uh, uh, electrolyzers, both alkaline and PEM, and particularly the alkaline now, since we're scaling up. And uh, of course, also uh, procurement is uh, a really important part of this. Obviously, if we order bigger volumes or talk with new sub-suppliers, we can get a lot more, uh, a lot better deals on on uh, the components that are not in-house. On that note, though, to follow up on what you guys were just talking about, about the trajectory of hydrogen going forward, you know, the the question is always, what are the challenges that you guys envision? What are, What's the barriers for hydrogen that they have to clear or that the industry has to clear to to grow in the coming years? Well, the barriers are different if you look at uh, mobility or, or, or industry. So, so I'll begin with industry because that's the easiest one. Because industry is very simple. Uh, cheapest hydrogen wins. And they're using hydrogen already today. And uh, for the industry sector, we're getting a lot of help from, from renewables and, and the cost reductions in renewables. So I've been working with hydrogen for 11 years now. And only since I began working with that, you know, solar has gotten more than 90% cheaper, wind more than 70%. And, uh, and, you know, I, and I was optimistic when I started working with this. So, so I'm, I'm fairly uh, optimistic about that going forward. And I believe we're basically moving towards a tipping point for renewable hydrogen, which surely will have a massive impact in the industry sector. Then I'm talking uh, ammonia, refineries, methanol, then if, if our friends in, in the hybrid project in Sweden, uh, looking at fossil-free steel, are, are successful with their project, I mean, that basically opens up a market which is more than twice as big as the entire hydrogen market today. And all of that is only dependent on, on the price uh, of, of renewable versus the price of natural gas and coal. So that will just happen on its own. And, and my best guess is that that happens before 2030, that we reach the tipping point where this is truly accelerating. Um, so, so, so not many bar- barriers there. The barrier there when we're talking to some of the big players that are asking us for electrolyzers, they rather view our capacity to deliver as a barrier. So they're very happy about us when we, when we uh, are scaling up our manufacturing capacity, first at 360 megawatt per year and, and then later beyond the gigawatt per year. When it comes to, to the mobility sector, uh, there is a lot more barriers and a lot more uncertainties. You know, there is moving targets there. You can you can uh, drive a car uh, both with batteries and, and with hydrogen. You can even uh, you know move a truck around uh, on batteries or hydrogen, things that were considered impossible just a few years back. So we don't really know how that will pan out. What we do know is that we will have both technologies within uh, the mobility sector as a whole. Uh, you know, the prices will go down on, on, on both technologies. And uh, as the general rule, uh, we believe that most places where you use diesel today, that's where you will favor hydrogen in the future. And most places where you use gasoline today, that's probably where batteries will be the best option in the future. So, so when we look at the future of mobility, we, we give it a 50-50 chance um, or a 50-50 market split. Right. Um, with regards to barriers in that industry, I mean, the barrier that, that we see or the risks that we run is uh, delays in, in deployment, of course. We're making investments in, in our manufacturing plants. We're making investments in new markets. Uh, and of course, being a hydrogen technology only company, we're dependent on that those investments pay off. And if things delay uh, due to political reasons or whatever, then then that's a risk factor for us. Um, and and challenges, uh, of course, we, we always have to reduce, reduce price. Uh, 
uh, of, of the equipment. Uh, we have to get a hold of uh, skilled labor uh, to uh, to fill the, the facilities that we have. Yeah, th- those are the main challenges. Sure, sure. And sticking with the mobility theme for a second, one of your uh, partners in that sector has been in the news quite a bit lately. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Nell's partnership with uh, with Nicola. Absolutely. That that's a really really exciting uh, project and and uh, and a truly. Uh, uh, truly uh, amazing partner. For those of you who don't know who that is, that's a, that's a fairly recent startup company. They're developing some kick-ass uh, zero-emission hydrogen fuel cell trucks. And they're basically busting the myth that you need some sort of diesel fuel for the largest vehicles. They also have a very pragmatic approach to electrification. They're using batteries where it makes sense. And if you want to go longer or refuel faster, then they simply add fuel cell system and, and hydrogen to that vehicle. And uh, their, uh, their primary vehicle is a, is a class A truck. It's called Nikola 1. They have Nikola 2, and then they have Nikola 3, not 3, uh, which is kind of interesting. 3 is, is 3 in Norwegian. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's the European version uh, <laughs> that we hope we'll see a lot of coming to Norway in, in not too long. Have they invited you out to, to Phoenix to take one for a test drive yet? Yeah, they have the they have the uh, the Nikola Trier hasn't been built uh, yet. They have a, a, an early prototype of it. The Nikola One and Two are there, and they have a couple versions of the Nikola Two currently being tested in in the U.S. Obviously, uh, for further development and deployment in not too long. They have truly big ambitions to deploy a countrywide network, which will by far be the biggest hydrogen fueling network all across the U.S. And we are lucky uh, to have a, a contract for for the first gigawatt of, uh, of electrolyzers and uh, and fueling equipment to cater for for the first trucks. So just to jump back to to something I think you mentioned on one of the the previous questions, Bjorn, and and following on with with Nicola, was there a particular reason that they wanted to use uh, alkaline electrolysis? Well, there there are several elements. Uh, as I mentioned before, it's it's the cheapest uh, and most efficient electrolyzer technology. They take up more space, bigger footprint than the PAMS. They're not as fast response as the PAMS, but they're still really, really good electrolyzers and they're super robust. And those are the electrolyzers, the only electrolyzers that have been deployed uh, on, on a scale of several hundred megawatts before. So we know that they work and they work very well. So I think that is, is uh, you know, those, those factors combined are probably the reason that they, that they chose that. Uh, and, and of course, since we have a very strong fueling uh, part of Nell also, where we develop a lot of the core technology ourselves, like the compressor, the chiller, the dispenser, uh, that also probably played a part in it. It's really exciting to work with them because they're working, uh, uh, they're not doing everything themselves that they're collaborating with with industry leaders such as Bosch you know you have CNH industrial Ryder Fitzgerald and and so forth so that's it's a, it's a, it's a collaborative effort and, and I think that is probably uh, uh, one of the one of the elements that will will truly make make them succeed and and you know they caught some uh, uh, quite a bit of attention already and they have 14,000 pre-orders for for the trucks Absolutely. So do you think this, you know, looking looking outside of even kind of North American Europe, do you think this this might be the model for mobility in a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle kind of uh, approach? 
No, I think that there are, there are many ways to, to succeed with hydrogen mobility. Obviously, what Nikola is doing, they are solving the chicken and egg problem. So deploying trucks and stations at the same time. Uh, that is obviously one of the challenges with the hydrogen deployment uh, in, in general, uh, that you have to basically overinvest in the infrastructure before you, you get sufficient vehicles to, to actually make, make a good profit from operating all of that. So obviously the fleet approach is, is attractive from a, from a business point of view. And we see also very strong developments in, in, uh, in the bus segment, both, uh, both in Europe and, and of course also in China. But, but we, we, we do see development all, all across uh, the, the, the transport sector, even, uh, even uh, in, in the maritime sector, there's a lot of stuff happening in Norway. And there's also some, some really cool startup companies now taking, taking hydrogen into the skies, like, like Zero Avia, for example. So Bjorn, um, obviously fantastic uh, to hear about all the exciting things going on. Couldn't let you get off the, the hook entirely without a question about uh, what happened at uh, sort on some safety issues, because obviously it's a question that does come up and it's uh, something that's quite sensitive. And um, Nell did have an incident at one of the refueling stations in Norway, which uh, I know you did a lot of really excellent outreach and communication work to the market to help explain what happened and how sort of the causes have been addressed. But I think um, it might be quite interesting for some of our listeners, just if you could explain a little bit about one or two of the safety aspects there and, and whether there's some of the safety concerns people talk about in general when they talk about hydrogen are just a little bit overplayed or or if you just think uh, that maybe we're looking at this from the wrong approach when we talk about safety in the industry. Yeah, uh, the, the incident at Sherbo was really, really devastating to us because we, we uh, take pride in our technology and we design all the hydrogen equipment uh, according to all relevant standards. We build in several layers of safety and our unwavering ambition is of course that we should have no incidents at sites where there is now technology on the site. Uh, and, and yet this happened. With the, with the incident uh, at, at Sherbo, uh, specifically what happened was that a, a plug in a high pressure storage a bank, which is, consists of several several bottles with with hydrogen at high pressure, had not been assembled correctly. So, during one of the compression cycles after refueling, it failed. That led to a leak. The leak ignited and caused you know significant damage to the station. Luckily, there were no serious injuries from the incident. There were some airbags that went off in some nearby cars, uh, but but luckily no no serious. In, uh, injuries. After after this happened, we of course put all of our efforts into finding the root cause of of the incident, which we which we did and identified. And we we even took the involved components, this this plug design, and we we did an accelerated test. We did one million cycles, which is more than twice the amount of cycles that this plug should experience in its lifetime. And it showed that the plug design was safe, you know, and that had been uh, um, verified by third parties uh, when we designed it, yet we took this extra test. All of our station was, was verified by a third party and, and the risk associated uh, on the hydrogen station was considered to be the same or lower as a conventional gasoline station. And, and, and basically that's, that's, that's what we also uh, um, see is that, that the, the risks are different from, from uh, conventional fuels. Uh, so you just need to know how to handle that. Obviously, going forward, uh, 
in uh, addition to uh, numerous other learnings, uh, rather uh, in, in addition to uh, the assembly error, uh, we obviously have implemented uh, those learnings retroactively on stations out in the field, uh, but of course also on the new stations. And uh, and what has been important for us since this incident happened was to be fully open about it, to share uh, learnings uh, with the rest of the industry, with the public, and uh, of course we will continue to do so to to make hygiene fueling solutions even safer than they are today. Sure. And despite challenges like that, the trajectory of the hydrogen of hydrogen energy technology seems to be going upward. As you've mentioned throughout the interview, hydrogen technology has been around for quite some time, but it's back on the radar now in a big way with companies like Nikola and others in industrial applications. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to our listeners about why things have changed and what's new in the hydrogen world that's making it uh, show back up on the radar? Well, one of the elements that uh, we have uh, talked uh, talked a bit about already is, of course, the development in renewables. I mean, it's ele- cheap electricity. That means cheap renewable hydrogen. Uh, of course, in addition to that, we have the, the focus on, on climate and environment, which is probably stronger now than it has been ever before. I mean, the world needs all good solutions, and, and, and hydrogen is, is one of the solutions, which for some of the big sector is basically the only solution so if you look at the, the steel industry that accounts for at least seven percent of the global emissions you have the the uh, ammonia refinery methanol industry that accounts for two percent of of the emissions so basically ten percent of the global emissions you have no other alternative than than a renewable or or blue hydrogen to to solve that element and then of course also in the transport sector that's also going ha- that also has to go to zero emissions and you don't have a whole lot of alternatives if you want to go zero emission you have two you have batteries and you have hydrogen so that also obviously bodes well for 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 the entire hydrogen industry so Bjorn, I just wanted to ask us uh, sort of a final question. Is there anything that uh, we didn't cover in this interview that yourself um, or Nell would really kind of like to convey to our listeners? Is there perhaps something that uh, you think isn't really discussed enough um, or that perhaps isn't really very well understood by people who are trying to get to learn the sector? If you could just share your thoughts. One big element which is not very well understood by, by the investment community and, and, and uh, people in general is that hydrogen is so much more than than just hydrogen cars you know you can basically replace oil gas and coal almost in its entirety with hydrogen so it's a industry sector all kinds of industries that people usually don't think about we covered some of them in this in this uh, podcast uh, both the ammonia uh, and, and and steel sector and uh, i think the, the, the massive potential that that holds is very poorly understood and also that you truly need renewable hydrogen in order to, to, to reduce the global emissions. And I think that's a perfect way to close out because we spend a lot of time trying to refocus the uh, the conversation away from mobility and on to the other applications of hydrogen around here. So that's well said. And uh, Bjorn, we really appreciate you taking the time. No worries. Really appreciate it. We hope you'll uh, you'll come back and join us uh, sometime next year, and we can hear about what's going on with Nicola and all the uh, all the other projects you guys have going on. Absolutely, looking forward to it. Uh, well, what'd you guys think? First impressions. It's 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 very interesting. I'm I'm. Chris really I'm, killed the mood there uh, at the end. Totally. Huh? That was Des- ooh, that was rough, buddy. Destroyed. Hard hitting reporting. Don't get me wrong. Hard hitting reporting, but I, wow. 
I think it's very interesting that they are taking a kind of a, a two-pronged approach to developing these markets, right? So that they have an alkaline electrolyzer capacity as well as a PEM. I'm very interested that to note that they, uh, you know, I think it's 700 uh, fueling stations by 2027 is the Nikola target. And now providing a, a gigawatts worth of that is uh, as an alkaline producer is very interesting, but also that they're taking a dynamic approach to mobility, right? Also very interesting to hear uh, heavy industries described as the easy bit in terms of uh, hydrogen substitution. I think the volumes involved are enormous and that's that's the real challenge. And I'm quite glad that... Uh, that Bjorn spoke to the the production capacity uh, challenge and risk because it's it's one aspect that that often in every sector is underplayed. No, and I think I just going maybe a little bit beyond that. I thought what was also just interesting was um, you know we haven't had the chance yet to speak to someone who could talk a little bit to both the alkaline and the PEM side, and also that we have such a rich history with uh, now as part of Norsk Hydro. I think he did a really great job of sort of talking about how this historically was a significant market. I mean, you know, who's talking about sort of hundreds of megawatts and uh, there's a very nice photo in one of Nell's slide decks of, a, I think it's a greater than 100 megawatt electrolyzer in one of uh, their sites in Norway that they built in the 1940s. So in a sense, it's kind of interesting to see uh, the markets kind of come full circle and Nell kind of embodies a lot of that. Um, but, but surprising still that there was so much space for price cuts despite that. Uh, I think that often uh, the assumption is, well, alkaline electrolyzer technology is very old and very well understood and so there can't be so much scope for um, further cost reductions and I actually think that uh, that was really well addressed by Beyond that actually they do see quite considerable opportunities and specifically where they see those opportunities as well I thought that was really useful. I'm interested to hear your take on this Andrew. Which part? Which Nor- part would you Norway? like to start with? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think uh, you know someone who uh, spends a lot of their time looking at the battery side of, of mobility I found Bjorn's remarks on that sector and the uh, synergies between hydrogen and battery vehicles to be very reasonable and and, uh, exactly what I think people should be saying. Because if we're being honest, for personal passenger vehicles, I mean, hydrogen fuel cell really, from a pricing standpoint, does not appear to be on a on a near-term trajectory to being affordable and cost-competitive. That story changes on larger scale freight and transport, which is precisely what Bjorn was saying. So there's a lot of room for the two to work together. So I, I, I thought he said exactly the right thing. I, I thought one thing that, that jumped out to me um, was the indications of where uh, Bjorn felt you started to hit pricing parity. Um, you know, Bjorn wasn't uh, even describing sort of um, the market necessarily having to decrease significantly in terms of electrolyzer prices when he was saying at below $50 a megawatt hour, you're starting to produce hydrogen at a point where it is cost competitive with gasoline in the transportation sector. And then I believe the number he was giving was below $30 a megawatt hour. You start to get to the point where you even are competitive in certain forms of industry. So I thought that was quite interesting that he went into that sort of level of specifics. Um, I think it also is interesting for people because it gives a sense of uh, how significant the uh, hydrogen story or how close the alignment is between the development of the solar and wind uh, story and the complete collapse in pricing uh, of those units, how cheap they now are to build, as Bjorn was saying today, and how significant that has been to underpin the sort of re-emergence of hydrogen. I think uh, it's often quite hard to explain to people why hydrogen has 
sort of, as it were, almost like a phoenix reemerged from the ashes, having been written off as completely unviable at the end of sort of the 90s and the early 2000s. So I think he did a really good job by giving some specifics about why that's changed and also some of the pricing points around where we'll start to see even bigger shifts. And some really powerful imagery there from the Jackson side of the conversation. No, well, I thought it was just interesting. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, time. I, I, well said. I like phoenixes. Phoenixes? Well, it's phoenix. Yeah, we'll go with phoenix. Um, it's Phenai. God. Um, but what was also quite interesting to my mind was, uh, you know, it's not difficult to see why I was maybe a little bit nervous about asking Bjorn about the incident at uh, the hydrogen refueling station in Norway, which Nell was looking after, because, you know, anyone who'd been following the stocks or had been following the company knows that this was something that was a big shock uh, that did create a lot of uh, pressures and Bjorn, um, you know, did a fantastic job and his team did a fantastic job in really in quite granular detail frequently going out and educating the market on it. But I was surprised by how candid he was about how difficult that period had been and how sort of as a company they took that so, so seriously. I guess it, to me, kind of spoke to how uh, important the safety aspect really is. And I think sometimes people think that uh, maybe new companies are sometimes a bit blasé about security risks. And I think I was really reassured and I'm sure our listeners would be to see that that absolutely was not uh, the impression for a moment that you got talking to Bjorn when uh, he was describing the incident. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think the, that his reply and, uh, you know, the, the candid nature of it is, speaks to the strength of their, of their convictions and the safety of the technology, right? I mean, if he weren't candid about it or were evasive, that would be more uh, concerning than addressing it head on like they have. And uh, saying that the technology speaks for itself, and that uh, there, you know, there are always uh, incidents. I mean, how many gas stations have blown up in years with with much more devastating results, right? I mean, this was, as Bjorn pointed out, uh, thankfully a, a relatively minor incident. Certainly, from a from an injury standpoint, if you put the safety record up against traditional gasoline and petrol stations. Uh, there's no there's no competition. I, I think it is pretty good. I mean, I was actually reading a, a stat somewhere from one of these millions of reports that are now fly around the UK, but it was saying that uh, the UK uh, has 2,000 tons of hydrogen that is being transported on the roads every single day. I, I'm not sure I could name. I didn't know anyone who, you know, maybe someone very knowledgeable in the industry, but I certainly couldn't name anyone or any time where I've heard of a hydrogen explosion or issue in the UK from any sort of transportation issue. I, I mean, I, I think that in a sense is part of the reason why it's maybe something we've heard of and we've talked about because it is so rare when these incidents occur. Chris, one final kind of point we should possibly should point to and maybe discuss a little bit. Just just on the, the the capex price points, I'm consistently now hearing numbers in the you know trajectory of sub four hundred dollars uh, a kilowatt. It seems like broadly across the sector we're we're getting to a, a stage of maturity and a stage of scaling where the we're going to see rather rapid price declines. Is that is that something that you're hearing? And, and additionally, how do you think that's going to start filtering out into the actual production system? Where do you think it's going to hit first? Glad you raised it, Patrick. I- I think what I would say is we need to be a little bit careful. And I think um, people in the market who've been around a little longer are kind of aware of this. But for those who are coming new to it, um, there is a wariness sometimes with these figures. Often when people are quoting CapEx for electrolyzers, they're not talking about the full balance of system. So sometimes they're not talking about things like, well, do you have to add additional purification? So, for example, an alkaline electrolyzer doesn't necessarily produce at the purity necessary for a fuel cell electric vehicle. It can produce high quality, but not necessarily 
at that level. So you need to add a further stage. There may also be water treatment that needs to be added to the system. There's also then the actual installation of the unit itself, plus um, the rest of sort of components like compression and storage. So yes, it's important. Yes, it makes a difference. But um, whether necessarily if we see a you know, a 50% price decline in the CapEx of an electrolyzer that should follow that we see a 50% decline in the price of the system and, and that then affecting the price of hydrogen. I, I don't think we necessarily will. I mean, we'll have to see how that kind of comes out in the wash, but I would just urge some caution on that when people hear those numbers. Um, I guess the other thing to caveat is that the numbers quoted often, and Bjorn talked about the 450 number, um, that is an aspirational forward-looking target. You know, Bjorn was saying that is the number which Nell think they will hit when the new manufacturing is up and running. Uh, and the idea, again, is that that is for large volume orders. As far as I understand it, we're not assuming that for a sort of one megawatt or sub one megawatt unit, that you're going to get that pricing. It will cost more. Um, and again, just because Nell is able to offer that or ITM or you know one or two of the other major manufacturers, uh, it doesn't mean that every single person in that ecosystem will be able to offer equivalent pricing. Um, and as we see increasing demand and picking up, and again, Bjorn talked about this, you know, actually there is a constraint starting to appear on the manufacturing side that potentially some orders may not be able to be filled for a number of years. It, it means that people won't always be able to go to a first tier supplier. They may have to go to a second or third tier supplier and the pricing will be even higher there. So I think that's just worthy of bear, worth bearing in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the joy of a, a maturing kind of sector, right? We're we're starting to see the the challenges that that come with kind of emerging demand, right? So it's production capacity and and the access to that, plus the um, the scale uh, implications on on cost start to be quite substantial. Yeah, no, I I think that's I think that's pretty much right on the money. Well, I don't have anything to add to that, guys. Patrick's looking at me like he's expecting me to say something profound. I always expect you to say profound <laughs> things, Andre. <laughs> One could never hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to say thanks to Bjorn Simonson for joining us from Oslo this morning, and uh, we hope he'll come back and join us soon. Lastly, if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, whichever platform you prefer. It really does help us get out there and get to a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you join us next time.